Welcome to freedom, becoming fully alive. Are you looking for riches, honor, and a more fulfilling and happy life? Is that your goal? Or will that be your reward? Today we'll be talking about becoming free from the arrow of pride. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be an arrow-free people. Whether it's pride, shame, fear, or any, of, any other arrow. Because we know that these arrows, Lord, are, are enemies of relationship, enemies of intimacy with you and with one another. So, Lord, even today, as we talk about being free from the arrow of pride, Lord, give us new light on the many faces of pride, Lord, so that we don't just think it's arrogant pride, but open our eyes to see, Lord, and not so that we feel ashamed and condemned and beaten down here today, but Lord, show us what we need to see so that we can respond to you and be free from this arrow and become even more fully alive, even today, Lord, even today, in Jesus' name, amen. So glad you're here today. Welcome to this series, Freedom, Becoming Fully Alive. We are in part two of this series. It's a seven-part series, and uh, this one being Free from the Arrow of Pride. And the title of this second part is Getting Your Whole Heart Back. You know, many of us, if not most of us, have given our hearts away to people, places, and things other than God. And when you do that, the longer you do that, the harder it is to get your heart back. But we pray that today will be a step in the right direction. As you look at your outline today, it says pride, an issue of significance. Just in the way of a brief review, let's turn to Romans 12, Romans 12, verse 3. If you brought your Bible, that's wonderful. If you didn't, just listen along and look this up later. It says in Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Pride isn't just an, an issue of arrogance. True, don't think too highly of yourself. But we could also say, don't think too lowly of yourself. Don't be down on yourself. Because if you get angry and upset with yourself, who are you trusting? You're trusting yourself, which is really an issue of pride. So don't think too highly. Don't think too lowly. Don't think too much. There's a book on the market, actually, by this title, I Was Always on My Mind. Don't think too highly. Don't think too lowly. Don't think too much. Don't always be on your mind. That's the essence of pride. I'm always on my mind. Philippians 2, let's turn there. Philippians 2. Starting with verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This was true of Jesus, the one who is God, all God, all man, Jesus Christ. He humbled himself, and the Father lifted him up. And as it says in James 4.10, so it will be with us. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will give your life significance, because this issue of pride is an issue of significance. We have an appetite for, for significance. It's not wrong to want to be significant. It's not wrong to want your life to count. It's not wrong if you want to make a difference and make an impact in this world. It's not wrong to want to be in relationship, love relationship. They have the ability of intimate relationship with another. That's not wrong. That's a God-given appetite. How we satisfy that appetite, however, is the issue. Are we looking to people, places, and things as the basis of that being satisfied? Pride personified. Many examples in the Bible of pride. We see in Isaiah 14, verses 2 and uh, 12 and 14, 12 through 14, we see the one, it really started with him, pride personified, capital P, Satan who wanted to be as the most high. There it is right there, wanting to be as God. And then we see that same one, that same one, that first that first rebel, if you will, the author of rebellion, who then came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, actually tempting Eve, Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, tempting her, and what does he say? You will not die, for the day in which you eat of this, you will be as gods. The very one who wanted to be as God tempted them with that same proposition. You will be as gods, deciding right and wrong, good and evil. You can run the show. And then Daniel, the fourth chapter. Daniel, the fourth chapter, referring to King Nebuchadnezzar. I'll just read a couple of excerpts from the passage that's listed on your outline. But in da Daniel, the fourth chapter, Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. It had been prophesied what would happen, and what was prophesied did come to pass. Verse 30, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking of himself. Is not this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still in his lips, still on his lips, when a voice came from heaven this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and you'll live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass you by, that's seven years, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he pleases. Immediately, when that had been said about Nebuchadnezzar, what had been said was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, ate the grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew from heaven, 
until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of time, after those seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. It reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15. He took his inheritance, went to the distant land, ended up in a pig pen. He came to realize he was in need temporarily. Nobody was there to help him. And finally, he came to his senses. That's a great place to be. That's when reality sets in, where we see things from God's point of view and no longer living in our sin, selfishness, and self-deception. So at the end of that time, his sanity was restored. He raised his eyes toward heaven, and then he praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He, referring to the Lord, does as is pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36, at the same time that my sanity was restored, this is still Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar speaking, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne, and, and I became greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's true that if we won't humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due season he will humble us. I would much rather humble myself than to be humbled by the living God. Isn't it interesting that as Nebuchadnezzar eventually humbled himself, that which had been taken away was restored and even more was given. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And then in 1 Samuel 18, 6, 1 Samuel 18, 6, speaking of King Saul, <clears throat> we no doubt know the story. Goliath had been slain by David, and they were returning. I'll pick it up at 1 Samuel 18, 6, when the men were returning returning home after David had killed the Philistine, of course, that's Goliath, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and tambourines and lutes, and they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him, and he thought, I have, they have credited David with tens of thousands, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom, referring to David? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And we could read on, but we know, as we would, that he proceeded then to try to kill David. And that became his mission, to kill David. He did not succeed, but that became his obsession. The jealousy, the pride of jealousy that was in his heart. It's important for us to realize as we are going through this series, removing these six arrows, pride, shame, 
fear, rejection, anger, and depression, it's important to realize that all six of these arrows are dipped in the poison of pride. In fact, every sin, if I could say it that way, every sin has as a part of its DNA the sin of pride because every sin at the core has a me-first dimension, wanting to be as the most high dimension, wanting to be in control, wanting to be the center. Even take a look at the word pride. pride. I is at the center. It's all about I. I'm at the center. It's all about me. I was always on my mind. As we look at shame, shame is believing in ourselves, really, because whether it's the shame of our own sin or it's the shame of sins committed against us, we carry this shame. And if we don't resolve it and we continue to harbor this arrow of shame, then what happens is we actually believe into a false identity that we are the sum total of our life's experiences or some defining part thereof. But how could we come to that conclusion unless we were believing in ourselves instead of believing God? Because if we believe God, we will not believe that we are the sum total of our life's experiences or some part thereof. We will believe that we are who he says we are. Now, we may be one today that needs to turn from something, if that is our present reality. We, need to, we, may, need, we may be one who needs to turn from running our lives today. Or we may be one who has, who is a forgiven son or daughter, but still feels ashamed, still feels guilty, and as a part of that remedy, we need to agree with God and say, that is not how he sees me. Though my sins were as scarlet, they're as white as snow. He's removed up my sin as far from the east as from the west. I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm loved with an everlasting love. He thinks I'm a favored, wonderful son and daughter. That's who I am. Even if I don't feel that way, will I agree with God? Agreeing with God is humility. And then fear, the arrow of fear. Believing in yourself, again, Unbelief toward God. You remember the Israelites that went in and checked out the land and they came back. Joshua and Caleb were in on that trip. And Joshua and Caleb did well, but everybody else came back and they were afraid. They were afraid because there were giants in the land. And before the Lord was going to send them into the promised land, they were thinking, I don't know if I want to go in there or not. There's giants in the land. They, it was a fear thing, and yet God called it an, an issue of unbelief because they were obviously not trusting God or entrusting their lives to God and believing that he would take care of them. And, of course, the antidote, as we talked about last week, of fear is perfect love, which carries with it the confidence. He not only loves me, he likes me. He's going to take care of me. And then rejection. Performance-based living is what makes that a pride issue versus grace-based living. I'm not saying we should presume upon the goodness of God and just live for ourselves, do what we feel like doing at the end of the day. Okay, Lord, I made a mess today. I sinned all over the place. But before I go to bed, I'm going to say my prayers now. Forgive me for everything, Lord. Okay, got a fresh start now. We'll do it all again tomorrow. That is not what God has in mind. He wants us walking 
in obedience to him, seeking to please him, wanting to please him, not wanting to sin. If we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the one who continually cleanses us of cleanses us from all sins, but never to presume upon his grace, but to realize that we don't obey to get his acceptance because we have his acceptance, because we have his forgiveness, because we have his favor, we want to obey. So it's not a life lived in terms of trying to live up to, it's a life lived because I'm living from who I am. I'm a son, I'm a daughter. I'm already forgiven. I'm already accepted in the beloved. I'm already a favored son. I'm already pleasing in his sight, and I want to please him. And where anger comes into play in terms of being a pride issue, many things can be true, but this is a very common one. For anger to express itself by setting standards for others and demanding absolute obedience to those standards. When you live that way, the pride, that kind of pride, setting standards for others and demanding absolute obedience to those standards. Where it's in the, if it's in the grocery line and, hey, this says 10 items, checks only or cash only, what are you doing? What am I doing? Well, that's not my standard. That's the grocery store standard. Won't somebody do it? So we might take the word of God. They're disobeying God. I'm upset. They ought to be doing it. Well, who made us the enforcer? We get so focused on others. And even if we are calling upon the word of God to say, okay, I've got a basis. I've got a basis for my standard. And if you don't do it, but that's not the heart. That's not the issue. We aren't the enforcer. God wants us to take his word and apply it to us and relate to others out of obedience to him. But anger will definitely come forth if we set standards for others and demand absolute obedience to those standards. And we value that, which we think is right, even if it agrees with God, when we value that more than we value the condition of our own hearts. And then depression, trying to control life. Internal temper tantrums, trying to control the outcomes. I'll assure you that if we try to control life, which is not our prerogative, by the way. That's God's job. We try to control the outcome, and our anger turns inward. We will be depressed in good season. Pride has many faces. It has many, many faces. And today I want to have us take a look at these many faces. Not that this is an exhaustive list. I have one for every day of the week, or excuse me, I have one for every day of the month, plus a bonus number 31. And I pray that God will speak to your hearts as we continue on today. I'm not bringing any of this up for anybody to feel condemned or accused. That's not the heart of God. I'm not bringing this up to rub any, anybody's nose in their sin. That is not the heart of God. We can afford to take a look at these things. We can afford to take a look at these things because of who he is. He is the lover. He is the forgiver. He is the restorer. And if these things would hinder us in our relationship with him and others, is that a good enough reason to take a look at these things? It's for God's glory, for the sake of our own hearts, and for the sake of relationship. This has great purpose. 
This isn't to pigeonhole anybody. This isn't to categorize anybody. This isn't to gang up on anybody. This isn't intended, okay, let's just pile it on today. No, no, no. But I really believe there's things that we don't see sometimes. So Lord, give us eyes to see so that we'll respond to thee and be free. The many faces of pride. Before we go further, though, I want us to ponder. I would like us to ponder what I've shared so far. Can you see any application in your hearts so far and in your lives? Can you see, even in a beginning way, have you been like King Saul? Have you been jealous? He was insanely jealous. Have you been like King Nebuchadnezzar? Really, really pleased with yourself and what you've accomplished and the kingdom you've built, so to speak, if you've built something. Can you see any of these arrows? Can you see trying to control life, setting standards for others? Are you uh, involved in, guilty of, if you will, performance-based living? Do you believe you're the sum total of your life's experiences? Are you always on your mind? Let's ponder that for a moment. Let's pause, reflect, and then we'll continue. Pride has many faces. Today we're talking about being free from the arrow of pride. Is this arrow in you today? If it is, it can come out today. It really can. Let's take a look at many different flavors and faces of pride. We'll start with some that um, are very commonly understood, and then we'll get into some others that maybe you haven't thought of as much. Certainly, trusting yourself versus trusting in God, that puts you at the center. Believing in yourself versus believing in God, that, again, puts you at the center. Angry with yourself or hating yourself, even, versus submitting to God's sovereign will and letting him define you. Many times people don't think that if they're down on themselves or have a poor self-image, that that really is an issue of pride because they think, man, well, the problem here is I need to feel better about myself. How could that be pride? But here again, we're operating from the premise that pride is thinking too highly, that it's only thinking too highly. It's only arrogance. But here again, that's, that, yeah, that's part of it, and that's, that's, a, that's an obvious and blatant part of it, and, and that is common. But if we're down on ourselves, if we're hating ourselves, we're trusting in ourselves. We, apparently, we're not convinced yet that apart from him, Jesus, that we can do nothing. Are we convinced yet? <laughs> Or do you think that there's still something in you apart from him that can get the job done? As long as you think that, and maybe you don't realize you believe that, but think about that for a moment. Do right. you think there's anything in you that can really get the job done, or are you totally convinced that apart from him you can do nothing? Also, you, know, you also believe that through him 
I can do all things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, as it says in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things, all things he wants me to do, of course, that through him who strengthens me. Number four, comparing yourself with others, being content with who you are. I can remember being guilty of that uh, before I surrendered my life to the Lord and after I surrendered my life to the Lord. After I had, I would compare with others in terms of how they were gifted and I hadn't really received with joy and thanksgiving how God had made me, fitted me, gifted me. I was comparing. And really, the Lord showed me the pride of wanting. I wanted it all. And, and of course, there was a part of me that wanted it all for his glory. But there was also a part that wanted it for, for me. And, and that is, that's pride. And the Lord convicted me of that and, and made it an issue of I needed to receive with thanksgiving how God had gifted me and how he had made me and how he wanted to use me and what my assignment was, the part, the vital part that he wanted me to play, which would be different than anybody else's part. So, comparing ourselves with others versus being content with who we are. Elevating others or putting others down would also be pride. Being judgmental or critical of others. Now keep in mind, the word judgment only becomes unrighteous, only becomes an issue of unrighteous judgment when our hearts become critical and passing sentence and condemning and playing God. Because a person could rightly assess a situation and uh, rightly discern it, observable phenomena, and uh, they've discerned it, they agree with God about it, and no condemnation though totally redemptive in their approach, uh, totally committed to the solution, willing to be involved as they observe that life that they're concerned about, and uh, never thinking they're better than that other person, and always with the attitude, Lord, have your way in me, too. I'm concerned about them, but have your way in me. But sometimes I think we get on, we get on our own case and we say, oh, you know, I, I guess I can't, I can't, can't allow myself to think. I can't allow myself to have an opinion about a behavior that was wrong. If you saw the Super Bowl halftime show, which I did not, but I saw the reruns afterwards, you could look at that and you could say, oh man, that, that was grieving. I think that was wrong. And somebody could say, well, that's kind of judgmental. The implication being, who are you to say what's right or wrong? But the attitude is the key. Somebody could say, you know, that really grieved me. I really thought that was inappropriate. I didn't agree with that. But not condemning the people involved. Not happy about it, wanting that kind of thing to change. But, of course, attitude is everything and tone is everything. So a judgmental tone would be, I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe the producers would allow that. What are they thinking about? Boom, 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 boom. Name-calling, labeling, and passing the sentence. That, that's totally an unacceptable attitude to the Lord. Totally unredemptive. Both would not agree with what they saw, but attitude and tone is everything. And God doesn't see, you know, God sees all things. He's God, but it isn't for the purpose of, okay, I got you. I see it perfectly. You're toast. You're fried. You're done. No, he sees all. He knows all. 
including having eyes of destiny, wanting us to repent and to change, be redeemed and be restored, not condemned. He desires that none should perish. He desires that none would be condemned. That's not his heart. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Certainly being unforgiving toward others is an issue of pride because who are we to demand payment? Jesus Christ, who gave his very life, who knew no sin, he gave his life. And when we forgive, we cancel the debt. We forgive others because he forgave us. And we're so grateful that he forgave a debt that we could have never paid. And now we want to forgive the other of their offense toward us or sin toward us as the case may be and we want to give away what he has given to us to hang on to have a right to make a claim to have an attitude pay me what you owe me is not our prerogative when we forgive we're the ones that get free anyway we're not the forgiver capital f when you forgive somebody they're not for, they're not forgiven capital f they still have to respond to god they still have to do business with god being jealous of others, we saw that clearly in the life of uh, King Saul in 1 Samuel 18, trying to impress others. Here again, we're at the center, it's all about me. Seeking to be served rather than serving others. Jesus is the wonderful, perfect example of humility. He did not come to be served, but to be the servant of many. Being self-conscious, maybe you haven't thought of that being an issue of pride. Being shy. Sometimes we make that a personality. Oh, they're just shy. Uh, I realize this is not a parenting class, but if it were, I could talk about how to address the issue of shyness in a child. Because I think some parents, as they're going through that with their kids, they kind of explain it away. Little Johnny or Susie are just shy. That's just a time they're going through. That's just a phase they're going through. They'll grow out of it. They'll be okay. No, we need to see it's an attitude. Now, more than one thing may be true, and we need to make sure there's a lot of nurturing love and time and investment in the relationship. We need to make sure we're living the life before them. We need to teach them how to live proactively. We need to be involved in their lives vitally, but we need to discipline them if they disobey. Clear and understood limits and attitudes, attitudes that are selfish and self-centered and have the I in the middle. They need to be addressed. And self-consciousness and pride do need to be addressed. It may take time, it may take prayer, but we just can't let it go. Being arrogant, being vain, valuing being right more important than being in right relationship. Oh, that's a big one. <clears throat> maybe you have been this way in the past, maybe you have been around people that are, but when you get in a conversation with them, it's just all about what's right. And, and it, does, it matters what's right. That's true. <clears throat> and, it, and having convictions, no problemo. But how are we treating each other in the process of this discussion? Does that matter? And what's the condition of my heart? I mean, I could win the battle and lose the war of the relationship. I've blown them away. I've burned every bridge. They don't want to talk to me again because I'm so opinionated and dogmatic. Even if I am correct in my belief, what's the condition of my heart? And what's the condition of the relationship? That's what God's looking at. 
not just what's right in terms of information and knowledge, but is the relationship right? Is my heart right? An entitlement mentality, an entitlement mentality is so self-serving. You know, you can work somewhere for uh, 10, 15 years, and, and we lose sight, don't we? we? We think that the boss owes us something, and we lose sight that, hey, they didn't have to hire us to begin with, and they don't have to keep us another day. But the longer we work there, the more entitled we think we are. And yes, perhaps things have been handled wrongly in situations where people have worked for someone for many years, and after 25 or 30 years, they've gotten the squeeze, so to speak, uh, and, and it, perhaps it was wrongly handled by the people in authority. But that's a separate issue. The condition of our hearts in response is our issue. That's what we'll have to give an account for, and an entitlement mentality won't help us. in the midst of unfairness, in the face of unfairness, perhaps. Life isn't fair, you've heard that. The issue is our heart, the issue of our obedience to the Lord. Thinking you deserve better, having a demanding attitude, having a condescending attitude toward others, know-it-all. How about insecure? Have you ever thought about that as an issue of pride? Now, we can all feel insecure at times in a relationship, and we need a little reassurance, and I'm not trying to make the issues, I'll let God make the issue, but if we're living in the, and if we're living in a pattern of insecurity, who are we putting our security in? You know, it's one thing if Mindy and I are feeling a little insecure in our marriage relationship and we need some reassurance. Yeah, we know we love the Lord, we know we love each other, we know we're totally committed, and, but there may be times where on the radar screen, you know, one or both are feeling a little insecure and and that doesn't make it an issue of, I can't believe the pride you've got in your life today. You need to repent. That's the issue. No, I'm not making that the issue. We need to let God make the issues anyway. But if you live in the land of insecurity, it's, it's security in I. That perpetuates that insecurity. Because the Lord wants to be our security. Never willing to admit wrong. Blaming others versus taking responsibility. And then how about unwilling to let yourself be known? Now, you don't have to share your heart with everyone. You don't have to let yourself be known by everyone. That, would, that would even, wouldn't even be wise. It really wouldn't. In fact, there will probably be relatively few people in your life that you will really uh, be able to fully make yourself known to appropriately. And, and that's okay. But do you have the freedom to? Do you have the freedom to? Certainly in marriage, that's God's design. Genesis 2.25, they were naked and not ashamed, a total picture of abandonment, no reserve, giving and receiving. And even outside of marriage, there may be appropriate disclosure of heart to a degree. There's always limitations outside of marriage. But are we free? Are we free to be known? For somebody to know our hearts, to share our thoughts and our feelings. Without fear, we're going to get judged. We're going to be condemned. Of course, we're going to be more apt to share with people that are safe. Who are safe people? People that send the message to you that they love you no matter what. They accept. They don't necessarily accept your behavior. They don't necessarily agree with everything. But they're committed to you. They're committed to you. You don't have to weigh every word. You don't have to qualify every point. 
They know. They know you. They know your heart. They're committed to you. That's a safe person. They're not out to entrap you in your words or get you. They love you. They're for you. Do you trust anybody? Do you really trust anybody relationally that you're not convinced is for you? I don't think so. You might trust their integrity and finance, but you don't trust them relationally if you're not convinced they're really for you and want the best for you and they're committed to you. <clears throat> Number 25, promoting yourself versus giving God the glory and, and giving others credit for their part. I don't know if Ronald Reagan can take credit for this. It probably originated with somebody prior to Ronald Reagan, but I've, I've heard it said that he had a little placard on his desk that said, it's amazing what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. And I believe there's a lot of truth in that that really goes along with what I'm saying. <clears throat> do you like to give the credit out to others or do you like to be the one to take the credit? You want to make sure everybody knows you're the, you're the one. You're the one. Or would you rather have others get the credit anyway? And above all, you'd rather have God get the glory. Number 26, putting yourself first, me first, versus putting God first and prefer, preferring others ahead of you. Having a poor me attitude, that certainly puts me at the center, the I in the middle. Poor me, self-pity. Performance-based living. Here again, I'm trusting myself. Perfectionistic. Now, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean that you don't... It's, it's, it's not to, to live wholeheartedly and to want things done well, excellence, all that, no problemo. Where perfectionistic becomes an issue is that your identity gets tied into it. Your attitude gets tied into it. In other words, if it isn't perfect, it might ruin your day kind of a thing. In other words, you don't want to give power to that kind of outcome that is only due to God. Does it have to be perfect for you to be happy? Does it have to be perfect for you to be in a good mood? Those are tests. Now, we want it to be perfect where that's possible. In other words, this uh, outline today can be perfect from the standpoint of no misspelled words and all that kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's a reasonable expectation when I have this put together that there are no mistakes. And in that sense, it's perfect in that, in that way. That's a reasonable expectation in the, in the day of spell check and all that on the computer. It, it, ought to, it, it should be without errors. And we don't want it to just be sloppy. So excellence is one thing, a high standard. I love to win. I'm competitive. But it's not going to ruin my day if I lose because I know I'm a winner in him. But I'm when I'm on the racquetball court or when I'm doing this, that, or whatever, whatever I'm involved in, I do it with all my heart. I want to win. I like to win. <laughs> but I'm living from an identity. I'm already a winner. And that is where I live in, in terms of uh, my identity in Christ. Wanting to be the center of attention, attention-getting behavior, that kind of thing can be prideful. And then, number 31, three for the price of one, being unteachable, defensive, and argumentative are all rooted in pride. I'd like to read uh, a story, 
And uh, it's an excerpt taken from the book, a book by Beth Moore called Praying God's Word. And it's entitled Pride. If you would like to uh, read this, it's in her book. Uh, I always like to be sensitive on copyrights and all of that. So I didn't think it would be appropriate to make a copy of it today. But if you'd like to look it up in her book entitled Praying God's Word, Beth Moore. My name is Pride. I am a cheater. I cheat you out of your God-given destiny because you demand your own way. I cheat you of contentment because you deserve better than this. I cheat you of knowledge because you already know it all. I cheat you of healing because you're too full of me, namely pride, to forgive. I cheat you of holiness because you refuse to admit you're ever wrong. I cheat you of vision because you'd rather look in the mirror than out the window. I cheat you of genuine friendship because nobody's going to know the real you. I cheat you of love because real romance demands a sacrifice. I cheat you of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash the feet of others here on earth. I cheat you of God's glory because I convince you to seek your own. My name is Pride. I am a cheater. You like me because you think I'm always looking out for you. Untrue. I'm looking to make a fool out of you. God is, God has so much for you. I admit that. But don't worry. If you stick with me, you'll never know. Lord, I just pray that... Uh, as we close this time today. We'll embrace your antidote here today. Humility and the fear of the Lord. I just want to invite you to respond to the Lord today as we close this portion of our time. If you can identify with pride in your heart, if you can identify with the arrow of pride in your heart, join with me in your heart embracing God's antidote for that. Humility and the fear of the Lord. Agree with God and make Jesus the reason. Agree with God and make Jesus the reason. And then going back to our theme verse for today, Proverbs 22, 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. I don't know about you, but I'm re-inspired, re-motivated to walk in humility and the fear of the Lord. The Lord has given us a clear path here. We can be free from pride. We can humble ourselves. We can allow him to lift us up. We can not make it a goal to have riches and honor and happiness, but to realize that God wants it to be our reward. He wants to reward us with these things. Isn't that amazing? He actually does. But we must humble ourselves. Agree with God 
and make Jesus the reason you do what you do or don't do. Make Jesus the reason you forgive others. They don't deserve it. You didn't. Make Jesus the reason you obey, no matter what you think the outcome will be. No matter, even if you don't think it'll do any good. Many times we get pragmatic and we think, oh, it's not going to do any good anyway. It's too late. Don't make that the issue. Don't make the outcome the issue. Make Jesus the reason. Make him the issue. Is he a good enough reason? Agree with God, make Jesus the reason, and receive his reward. Thank you, Lord. Add the increase to our time. Bless our remaining time together. I pray that each heart here today will respond to you and agree with you and make you the reason they do what they do or don't do. Make the re you the reason they live. Make you the reason for everything that comes to their hand. Make you the reason for every relationship. Make you the reason for their part in every relationship. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.